early chapters, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in this book. Uh, Today, we are at the end of chapter two, and we come to the letter to the church in Thyatira. It is the longest of these seven letters uh, to what is the least important, by worldly standards, least significant of these seven cities. But no matter, uh, the Lord is not a respecter of persons, nor is he a respecter of cities. He has his people there, and he cares for them, and he speaks to them, and we will hear him speaking uh, to the church in Thyatira, Thyatira and to the church here in Concord today. You can find this reading on uh, page 1029 of your cart Bibles. We are reading in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 29. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Before we go to the Lord to hear his word, let us return to him in prayer and seek his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and ever-loving Father, we thank you for this word to your people, to us. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and rejoice in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that he is the strong one, the king of creation and his church, the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron, and yet the one who cares and knows what his people are up to. We pray that you would speak kindness and comfort to us today, conviction where we need to see it, and that you would build us up by your Spirit uh, to produce fruits in keeping with righteousness and to know that all of our righteousness is hidden with all your treasures in Christ Jesus. We pray in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. In 2003, there was a tectonic shift in New England. There was a movement uh, that pried open a fissure that was already beginning to crack open uh, in uh, American Christianity. It was in August of 2003 that Gene Robinson, an open and practicing homosexual man, was elected as the bishop of the New Hampshire Diocese of the Episcopal Church. Perhaps you remember uh, some of the flurry, even in secular news media, the reports that went out asking what was going on in the Episcopal Church. Perhaps you are astounded that in just 15 years that sort of thing is basically normalized in American Christianity. But no matter, at the time it was a controversy, and it was a controversy even within the Episcopal Church. Of the 62 fellow bishops, who voted in favor of Robinson's appointment. One of them was Peter James Lee. And he was pressed by some of the conservatives in his denomination as to how he could vote and cast his name in favor of something that seemed to be so clearly against the teaching of Scripture. And here's how Peter James Lee replied. He said, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. Now, what is astounding in that statement is how clearly he saw the issue. In 2003, he was not trying to water it down. He was not saying, oh, this actually is okay. He called it heresy, and yet he said, I will cast my vote in favor of false teaching. In his judgment, heresy was worth tolerating. In his judgment, truth was secondary to unity. And the difficult work of church discipline was something that was distasteful, intolerant, and hateful. Now, I'm aware, as you are, that it is much easier to look at the speck in someone else's denomination while ignoring the log in your own. So let me tell you about something that's happening a little bit closer to home. Just two weeks ago, Uh, in Memorial Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA congregation in St. Louis, Missouri. Memorial Presbyterian Church hosted a conference known as Revoice. If you don't read Presbyterian or conservative blogs, you've probably never heard of it, and that's okay. Uh, But basically, it included many speakers from outside of the PCA, and it was focused, as their website says, on, quote, supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Now, that last phrase is quite comforting. We ought all to be in favor of a historic, or even better, a biblical Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality, and that's a good thing. And certainly, sinners of all stripes and kinds ought to be brought into the church where they can hear the message of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ that constitutes any kind of true human flourishing. But what is troubling is the way that this conference is muddying the waters over the question of whether it's helpful or whether it's even possible to hold dual identities as both gay and 
Christian. Now, this is a hot topic in our wider church culture, something that might even be controversial here among some of the people. And I, I don't want to be uh, insensitive, yet you are aware that there are some in the church who are saying things like, well, immoral activities, those are certainly wrong and a matter for repentance, but what our culture is now calling orientation is not about repentance. That an attraction or a bent to people of the same sex is something that is innate and unchanging. And maybe it's unfortunate. Maybe we'll even go so far as to use the term broken, whatever that means. But it is certainly not something that is sinful and certainly not something that we can or should repent of. This is the language that you're hearing. And the organizing church uh, and the speakers at this conference seem content to exchange uh, the scriptural language of degrading passions for our cultural term, alternate orientations. And the question that remains to be answered, even in our denomination, is how far this sort of teaching will be tolerated, and whether we ought to tolerate such things within our church. Now, let me put you at ease. This is not a sermon on homosexuality and the church. Uh, this letter is not primarily about what you ought to think about sexual orientation. It is not primarily about who ought to be ordained or not ordained as leaders in the church. Uh, but, in a way, this letter is about all those things and more because this letter is primarily a declaration that Jesus Christ is the undisputed king of his church. He is the living Son of God who sees all and knows all and judges all that happens within his body. This letter is a declaration that Christ Jesus is the only lawgiver and Israel, the only shepherd of his sheep. And this letter is a declaration that King Jesus will not tolerate a compromising church. This is the very sobering message that we find to Thyatira, and it's very similar to the one that we found to Pergamum. It is the message and the call to put away our compromises with the world and to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to see this message unfold today uh, in four points, and each one of them is going to revolve around Jesus, who is the center of the church. We're going to see first who Jesus is, Secondly, what Jesus loves. Third, what Jesus hates. And finally, what Jesus gives. Who he is, what he loves, what he hates, and what he gives. Let's begin with who Jesus is. Right from the start, you notice the bold way that Jesus reveals himself to the church in Thyatira. He comes out and says it. Say to that church, these are the words of the Son of God. Notice how different that is than some of the other letters we've seen already. Where the Lord, I think rightly so, would be veiling himself in a sense or revealing himself according to his characteristics or his actions to the other churches. The words of the one who walks among the lampstands, that's what he does. The one who has the double-edged sword, that's what he has, that's his characteristic. But now, all of that falls away. These are the words of the Son of God. There is no language of hint or illusion or symbolism. He reveals himself. 
It's unique in these letters. It's unique. Actually, this is the only place this phrase, Son of God, shows up in the entire book of Revelation. Elsewhere, he's called the Lamb or the Lion or uh, the Rider on the White Horse, uh, the Branch of David, all sorts of things. And here, in this letter, there are other descriptors. We learn about his eyes. We learn about his feet. But the thing that we need to know is who Jesus is, and he is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who has always been in relationship with the Father because he is always with the Father. He is the pre-existent, self-existent, eternal Son of God through whom all things were made that have been made and apart from whom has nothing been made. He is the King of creation and the Lord of his church He is the one to whom all authority has been given by the Father. And here at the beginning, Jesus is declaring who he is so that we know that his identity is the key to how we set priorities in the church. It has to start with who Jesus is. Isn't it so often the case when God's people go astray, maybe in small things, maybe in large things, when God's people go astray, we can trace it back somewhere, somehow, to forgetting or ignoring who Jesus is. We are too self-absorbed or too timid to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ in public. Is it not the case that we have forgotten that he is the one who has all authority in heaven on earth? Is it not the case that we have forgotten that he is the one who has secured for himself a harvest and all we need do is go and gather? When we come to worship and and we leave feeling dejected or deflated because worship hasn't ticked all of our preferential boxes, And it doesn't leave us with that rush of enthusiasm like you have when you hear some motivational speech out somewhere in the world and we come and we say, I don't know about worship today. Isn't it the case that the reason that happens is that we have forgotten who it is we are worshiping? The perfect and crucified and risen and ascended Lord who is at the right hand of the Father. And we forget that worship is about who he is and not what we like. Isn't it the case when the church makes dangerous compromises with the world and doctrine or, or morality or some other thing, even the way that we go about doing our ministry, isn't it the case that we've forgotten that Jesus is the Son of God? He's the one with the eyes like a flame of fire who searches heart and mind, who knows all and sees all and judges all that happens in his church. Brothers and sisters, this is where we must always begin. It is with who Jesus is. With any question, with, with, with any teaching, with any goal in the church, we must begin by asking, does this reflect who Jesus is in the church? Is our church asking any questions right now? Yes? Are we having any larger discussions behind uh, the, the, uh, the noise of worship? Will we be talking about anything? Do we have any committees running? Yes, this is where we need to start. Does whatever we're about to do and whatever we want to pursue in the church, does it reflect who Christ is? That he is the Lord who is worthy of all of our praise and adoration and sacrifice and worship and joy. Faithfulness in the church begins when we consider who 
Jesus is. But then we find out what Jesus loves. Now, despite the very large rebuke that's coming pretty soon, and we'll get there, despite the very large rebuke that's coming to Thyatira quite soon, we find that there's much in Thyatira that is worthy of praise, which, as a side note, ought to cause us to consider how often these things are closely aligned one with another, how there can be churches so worthy of praise but so full of compromise one at the same time. And it ought to cause us not to be too prideful in the things that are going well here at Redeemer and not to be surprised if compromise is maybe right around the corner, but we'll get there. There's a lot that is worthy of praise in Thyatira. The Lord says that there is a, a church here that is full of love, love for the Lord and, and love for one another, and they're so full of love that you can see it in the way that they're serving one another. He says that they're full of faith in what Christ has promised to give them. And so it, it doesn't matter to many of them what they find in the world and the pressures and the tribulation that they face. They are patiently enduring. That's a word that we've seen come up in these letters over and over again, this patient endurance. And there's love and there's faith and there's service and there's patient endurance. But more than that, the Lord says this church is living and it is active and it is vibrant because we, he says that they are growing in spiritual things. Take a look, verse 19. I know your works, love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. How different from that stagnant and maybe regressing church in Ephesus who had lost their first love. How different from that lukewarm, apathetic church in Laodicea who was neither hot nor cold. No, Thyatira was living and growing in the Lord like the vineyard of the Lord, growing and increasing and producing fruits that are pleasing to God the Father in His sight, increasing in witness and love and faith in ministry. Thyatira was growing in spiritual things. And that growth is what Jesus loves to see in His people. Now you need to know, before we press on any further, that growth in spiritual things is one of the essentials of life in Jesus Christ. Those who are united to Christ, the true branch, will be known by their growth in spiritual things. Stagnation and regression are not an option. Do not misunderstand me. You are not saved or justified or counted as righteous in God's sight by your good works. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ in his perfect and sinless life, in his atoning death, in his physical bodily resurrection. By believing in those things, we have life and we are counted righteous in God's sight and none of your works of righteousness will ever make you more righteous before the Father. We are saved by faith alone. But... All of those who are alive in Christ by faith will be growing by faith in Christ. This is one of the lies that we hear in the contemporary church today. It says that salvation is uh, completely dependent on some bare decision that you made maybe 30 years ago at some rally. And you've got the card in your wallet to prove that you made that decision. But since that time, you don't need 
anything else, and you don't need to see evidences that that decision was real. You don't need to grow in your love for Christ or your obedience to his word or your, your love and your service to the church. All of that is secondary, and it's a lie. Those who are in Christ will be growing in Christ. Sometimes it may be slow, brothers and sisters, and you may need to wait long until you see it. But this is the truth. This is what the Lord loves to see in his people is growth in spiritual things. This is how spiritual life works. This is why Paul prayed for the church in Colossae. He said that he wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is why Peter commanded the people who received his letter, the believers, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus loves spiritual growth among his people. He loves it because it proves that his people are spiritually alive. And so maybe today you need to take uh, this standard of spiritual growth and, and apply it to your own life and ask, where is the Lord growing you? Are you increasing in, in love for him and a joy at his word? that is separate from your daily circumstances? Are you increasing in, in sacrificial giving or attendance upon worship and, and the means of grace? Are you increasing in your service to his people wherever the, the Lord gives you opportunity? Perhaps you need to apply this to your life and ask where and whether you are growing at all and turn to repentance. Because growth and repentance, that's spiritual vitality as well, isn't it? Sensitivity to the Lord and his leading. Perhaps you need to apply this to your own life, but we all certainly need to apply this to our church together. And yes, here we are asking uh, these questions and having these conversations about uh, facilities and growth uh, and uh, ministry and local communities and all of these sorts of things. And all of those things could be good, but the only kind of growth that is worthwhile is the growth that comes from a collective desire to grow in love and service to Jesus Christ. We could make our ministries busier. We could make our budget bigger. We could build a church uh, that would pale all the others in the area in comparison. If we'll only put our noses to the grindstone, but all of it could be for nothing. And you know that. If you look at the vast majority of churches already in Concord, where the building is beautiful, and the calendar is full, and the gospel is vacant, the only kind of growth that matters is growth in love and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. May he add all of those other things as we seek first his kingdom, but let us seek first this. Growth in the Lord and spiritual things. Now, we see uh, that the Lord loves spiritual growth. We've seen that the Lord is, Jesus is the Son of God and that he loves spiritual growth. Let us consider together uh, probably the larger portion of this letter, what it is uh, that Jesus hates. This will be hard for many of those uh, who are steeped in American culture because the buzzword that Jesus will draw out here is tolerance. And tolerance in our wider culture uh, is celebrated as the cardinal virtue of our pluralistic society. 
there is no higher good than to be tolerant of one another and to say, whatever you believe, that's okay for you, and I'll believe my own thing, and we'll get along, and we'll be okay, and we'll be together in that. But there is a tolerance in the church that Jesus hates. And Jesus hates it when his church tolerates false teaching within its ministry. In Thyatira, the false teaching centered on one woman. Kind of like in Pergamum, she's called by a code name. Her name probably wasn't actually Jezebel, but the Lord calls her Jezebel because most likely she's doing things like that Jezebel in the Old Testament used to do. You remember Jezebel. She was that pagan princess who married King Ahab. And she incited her husband to idolatry. She hated the God of Scripture. She put to death the prophets of Yahweh. She instituted a state-sanctioned system of idolatrous worship to Baal and Asherah. She did everything she could to subvert the true religion of God's people in Israel. And apparently in Thyatira there was a woman doing similar things, leading people astray teaching doctrines of false worship to false gods under false pretenses. We can imagine how this sort of thing might have taken hold in this church. We've seen already the general economic pressure that faced most of the believers at this time, a pressure to conform or to be destitute. Thyatira was a manufacturing town. It was not a cosmopolitan city. You remember that Lydia was a believer in Philippi, who was from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. This is a place where they made things like uh, leather work and cloth and items of bronze and silver, and they were a manufacturing town. And if you wanted to have a manufacturing job, you had to be a part of one of the trade guilds. And we've seen this already. And so there is a temptation for the believers, they could either maintain fidelity to Christ alone and be kept out of those guilds and potentially be destitute, or they could compromise their witness to be received by the world. They could have economic stability, but it would cost them mixing in a little bit of worship of Apollo, a little bit of worship of Caesar, a little bit of Zeus together with Christ. And it seems that this Jezebel was teaching that, you know, it's okay to go along with those things. It's okay to go to those trade guild feasts and to, and to eat the meat and raise the glass and say the thing when they say the thing. And afterwards, when everybody's engaging in debauchery, as they did in all of these pagan feasts, you don't want to look like the odd man out, so stay there and indulge and it'll be okay and don't worry about it. Jezebel is leading them astray. And Jesus hates when the church tolerates this kind of idolatry. Now, you may think it's too harsh to talk about something that Jesus hates. But look back, chapter 2, verse 6, that letter to Ephesus. He says to them, this at least is, is what they have, yet, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Lord hates the works of those who were leading his people astray, the same group that was infiltrating Pergamum, and, and he compared to Balaam. The Lord says, I hate this sort of thing among my people. And I have this against you, Thyatira, that you're putting up with it. You're tolerating these compromises. You are not dealing with it and removing it from your midst. And the Lord hates that kind of idolatry and tolerance in the church. There are a few reasons for that. For the Lord's hatred of this kind of tolerance. 
the first reason for Jesus' hatred is that this kind of tolerance and idolatry subverts Jesus' authority. Jesus says that the church was tolerating that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. This is where false teaching normally begins in the church. Very rarely will a false teacher come to you and say, you know, the Bible actually uh, is not very reliable and not very true. You should listen to me instead. Uh, false teaching comes as a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. It comes very often some magnetic sort of charismatic personality who shows up and says, you know, the Spirit has revealed this to me. And your Bible, it's okay, but if you want to go deeper into the things of God, listen to what I have to say to you. I have an anointed ministry. Isn't that what you see on, on advertisements and flyers and all over those television stations? So-and-so has an anointed ministry. The prophetic word spoken by so-and-so and say, oh, I, I'm a prophet or a prophetess, and I will teach you how to go deeper in these things. And they set up their own authority outside of the prophets and apostles and evangelists that the Lord has given and sanctioned in his word. And what it does is it undermines Jesus Christ's authority. He says, actually, if you're thinking you're learning deep things from this Jezebel, they're really the deep things of Satan. Let's pull back the curtain. Let's take off the sheep's clothing and expose the wolf for what she is. He says, this kind of undermining of my authority, going against the grain of my authority, that's the deep things of Satan, and, and, and the Lord hates that sort of thing. The second reason that Jesus hates this kind of idolatrous compromise in the church is that it endangers Jesus' people. It undermines Jesus' authority, and it endangers Jesus' people. Notice the possessive language in verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Mine, he says, to practice sexual immorality and idolatry. Three summers ago, Jason Browning made national headlines. He's a father who lives in Florida. And he came home, to put it gently, uh, to find an 18-year-old man abusing his 11-year-old son. And before he called 911, he beat the abuser until he was practically unrecognizable. And that sort of thing, that story that we see out there in the world, that's unsettling. But it calls to mind some of the language and some of the imagery of the Lord caring for his own children through the Old Testament prophets. It brings to mind specifically for me Hosea. Hosea wrote to the northern kingdom of Israel just about 100 years after Ahab and Jezebel, and he spoke about those leaders in Israel who were leading his children astray. And this is what the Lord said, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Jesus hates false teaching in his church. Why? Because he loves his children. And any father or mother who genuinely loves their children will hate with a passion anything that stands to do them harm. And so we're not surprised when Jesus comes with even harsher language, and he says, I'm going to come to the church in judgment. 
The Lord will no longer tolerate what his people were tolerating. He will strike this Jezebel. He will afflict her consorts. He will kill her children. That language there probably refers to her followers, not uh, literal children, but those who were following after her. King Jesus is going to come to his church in judgment. Why? Because he must protect his people and he must restore his authority in the church. Isn't that the goal? At the end, he says, Thyatira is going to be an example. He says, I am going to come to you, and I will strike her children dead, it says in verse 23, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. He says the message is going to spread, and all of the churches will know. All of the churches will know that Jesus is the Lord, the one with eyes of fire, who sees and searches heart and mind. He is the king who comes with boots of bronze to trample the grapes of wrath and to pay back as each deserves according to his works. And he says, all the churches will know that King Jesus will not tolerate a compromising church. And you can dress it up all you want. You can call your compromise a cultural sensitivity. You can say that what you're trying to do is is go to some deeper level of meaning in Christian experience than you can find in Scripture alone, and you want some outside authority to lead you into ways that, that others may not know, and you want to be special. You can do what the leaders of this conference did. You can say you're trying to experience, quote, a new kind of gospel community, as though the old kind were not good enough. But the Lord sees through it all. He's the one who tests heart and mind. He knows intention and motive and unseen obedience. And he says he will not tolerate the teaching of Jezebel among his chosen people. The Lord hates when his church tolerates false teaching. And then finally, we come to what Jesus gives. Like the other letters, uh, Jesus uh, draws attention Uh, to some promises that he has for his faithful conquerors. But you notice, perhaps, uh, in this letter that the language is a little bit different. This is the only letter that expands uh, what it means to be a conqueror. There's a second phrase there. All of the other letters, all six of them, says, to the one who conquers, I will such and such. Uh, To this one, not so. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nation. And, And by this phrase here, Jesus is drawing attention to that growth that we spoke about earlier. He's laying before the church two options. He's saying you have a way of compromise or a way of faithfulness. And you get to choose. And there is a wonderful parallelism here. Notice in verse 24, he was speaking about those who were aligned to Jezebel. And what does he call them to repent of? He says, uh, verse 24, um, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Where is it? Forgive me. Uh, It says, uh, they will not repent of her works. Verse 22. will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, and thus they repent of her works. They're aligning themselves with Jezebel. But to the faithful ones, to those who did not hold to those teachings, he says, you should stand firm. Keep my works, says Jesus. You have a choice. 
compromise with Jezebel or faithfulness to me. Two options, compromise with the world and find stability and ease here and now, or hold fast to what we've received from Jesus. Continue looking to him as our portion and our strength, even if the world should punish us in the public sphere for our intolerable sins of intolerance. Those are the options. That's what it means to be a conqueror, to hold fast to Jesus and to his works, to persevere by faith to the end, knowing that his promises are sure and true. But what does he promise? What does he promise to give to his faithful conquerors? Two things. And they're both uh, a little bit puzzling. The first one, he says, uh, I will promise uh, to give you a share in my conquering kingdom. Take a look at the language of verses uh, 26 and 27. Uh, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, that is puzzling language, but that's why it's so important for us to have begun today considering Jesus as the Son of God. Because this is kingship language. Jesus is quoting here an enthronement psalm. Psalm 2, do you remember it? Psalm 2, where it says that all of the nations are raging against the Lord and against his anointed, and they want to break the bars and, and put them asunder, but God in heaven laughs. And then it turns to the Son, and it speaks of his kingdom and his rule and his authority. And this is what it says in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Jesus is saying, if you are faithful to me, I will give you a place with me in this kingdom of mine. Strange as it may seem, the Lord is promising a place with him, a security and an authority that this world could never offer. He's saying all those things that the church thinks she can gain by her compromise with the world are destined for destruction. Far better to wait and to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken than to throw your lot in with the world that is passing away. And he says, to my conquerors, I will give a part in my conquering kingdom. And then secondly, he says, I will give them the morning star. Verse 28 I will give them the morning star. Now, if the first promise is puzzling, this one is a complete enigma. And uh, if you would like to get a PhD uh, in New Testament studies, you could write some dissertations, and you could publish page upon page upon page upon page about what this could possibly mean. And you could confuse lots of people by writing your commentaries about what this means. But you don't have to be confused about this. Like most good textbooks, the answer is in the back. Turn to Revelation chapter 22 the very end of the book. Oh, my kingdom for a Bible without a concordance. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What does Jesus promise to his faithful conquering people? He says, you get me, the morning star. Don't compromise with the world. Don't, 
go astray after that idolatry and think that you can gain something else and some stability by worshiping Apollo and all of these things or whatever compromises we think will get us ahead in the eyes of the world. He says, I'll give you myself. That's the reward for those who are faithful. And so we come full circle. The Son of God, the morning star, the King of creation and the church, and he says, if you hold fast to me, I will be your reward. Brothers and sisters, how dare we to compromise with the world when he is the gift that awaits his faithful servants. And what will it profit a church if we gain the respect of the whole world and lose our Savior? Dear believers, let us labor and endeavor by God's Holy Spirit working among us, by his work in us, in our lives, and especially as a church, not to tolerate sinful compromises with the world. King Jesus, our great rewarder, lover and redeemer of our souls, will not tolerate a compromising church. Please join me in prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this word which you have given to us. We thank you much more for your Son, given for the sins of your wayward people, prone to wander. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bind our wandering hearts to you. Pray that you would keep us from compromise. Individually grow us in spiritual fruits in keeping with repentance. Remind us that you are the one who saves us by your perfect life and death and resurrection. Keep us ever growing closer to you and and in love for you and in service to your church. Oh, give us direction as a church and as a congregation not to make compromises as we pursue where you are calling us. We ask that you would work and do these things for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and by the power of your Spirit, we pray in his name. Amen.